Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're talking about tech and teens with Dr. Devora Heitner of Raising Digital Natives. We're going to talk about how we can help guide our teens through life in the digital age and how to get away from being the monitor, uh, the monitor of their use of technology. Devora talks a lot about that. But before we talk to her, we're going to talk about our own stories in this space. It's complicated, right? Like you hear her talk. I mean, you guys are in for such a treat because she offers such really sound advice. On the other hand, some of it is really just sitting back and kind of letting them make some mistakes. No one wants to do that. I was sitting here thinking like, I want a do-over. That's how I feel. I'm like, ah, oh, like I, I want a do-over on this and taking her advice. But, and <laughs> it's, it's so hard to do that. And it's so hard, but maybe, maybe there's kernels in there, right? Like everything with parenting, you don't have to take all of it. Maybe you take a couple pieces or one piece and try it. And you see how that works for you and your kid. First of all, I'm so grateful I don't have teenagers right now. My kids are out of this stage. But I will say that the one thing I maybe got right, and probably as a result of working in the Your Teen space, is I understood the platforms they were on. And I have no idea what Discord is because my kids are all out of the house. But I wonder if I would know enough about it today. The advice about Discord was outside my ability to understand And yet, if we talk about other social media platforms, I went on them and I had my kids teach me about what they were using it for until they caught on and got irritated with me, um, which was probably 10 minutes in. (laughs) But really, we had to learn it for your teens. So in, in some ways, like it totally cracks me up when they have to come to me for help. I'm like, in what world? Would I understand a social media platform better than my kids? But there are occasionally those times and I milk it. I really milk it because they have treated me like I'm a moron for so long. And then they go like, so one of my deep skills is unearthing information. I am a good researcher. I'm going to use positive words. I'm a very good researcher and occasionally My kids have to come crawling and say, like, so I have this job interview and I can't find a thing about this person. And I'm like, so you want my help, huh? Yeah, I think it's it's so hard. I do know, and I've been in this position with other parents, and maybe because my my kids are slightly younger than yours, where it's it's so hard to get a handle on all of it. And we're so unsure of ourselves in so many spaces. And so you say, oh, is your kid on social media? Oh, no. But then in the next sentence, oh, yeah, but they have an iPad and they use, like, it's like everyone's trying to, like, kind of carve out their space where they feel safe, which is what we do as parents, right? We want to feel safe and we want our kids to feel safe. And I think the reality is that there's lots of places they can get tripped up. And what I loved about what Devorah says is, it's okay to let them get tripped up because there's lessons in there too. Now, of course, you know, if the stakes are low and all these other things that go along with that, but those are good places for them to learn and for us to learn. I don't remember sitting back and saying, I'm going to let them deal with the consequences of this. And I don't know that I would be so good at that. It's not that I would step in the way to save them, but I wouldn't also like step away completely and just be like, let the chips fall where they may. And I think that 
her point, which you guys are going to hear, we don't want to tell you everything. So you decide you don't have to listen. But one of the things that was really significant is letting your kids have some control in high school, because you're not going to know how they're going to respond when they're alone in college. And that to me is really significant. And like concrete things I could do, like I could make sure my kids knew how to call the doctor. And even when they didn't want to, I could kind of say, okay, I dialed the number, here's the phone kind of stuff. But the the tech stuff of really letting them as a senior in high school own it, because you might as well find out now that they can't control it. Yeah. That's hard. That's really yeah. hard to do. With every topic we cover, there is this idea of walking alongside them so that we're not leaving them out there, like hanging them out to dry, but we're nearby. And I always have that image of kind of like just being in the background. I see this in that in that same way. It's hard, though. OK, so I have a story and I'm going to try to tell it to tell it in the most anonymous way which is leaving out some of the really fun part of it. The moment where you realize you didn't know anything and you have a little bit of an eyes wide open experience where you go, oh, okay, that's what happens here. So there was like a a battle going on between a kid and a friend and a mother kind of got involved and said like, you know, you need to do something here. This is wrong. To which I turned around and said to the kid, just make this go away. I don't want this to explode. And the whole story is going down a path of my kid, my kid, my kid. And so I was kind of like, you know, having this feeling like I need to sit down and have a serious talk. And, and then I don't remember who told me, but someone shared with me that the other half of this story was taking place on the Finsta and on this person's Finsta account. And the narration was of precisely what I made my kid do. And it was like a ha ha, look what I got out of this. Ha ha, I got an apology. And I, I mean, the rage on hearing that this whole underworld is taking place and that I'm actually thinking that my kid is in the wrong when it was, it was so, it was so devious. All of this is happening in a world that we, we just will never know unless someone reveals it to us. But like, how, how would, I wouldn't even know how to find somebody's Finsta account other than that they might have one. But there was this whole second storyline going on that was so nasty and put me in such a different headspace going forward of like, you really, you just don't know. You just don't know. It can go wrong so easily, so easily. It's no different. We have this conversation with bullying and we have, and we talked to our kids about like, trying to, what what are they going to do? How do we bolster our kids for those situations? And I think it's the same thing. Like, how do we, how do we help them when those hurts occur? And how do we teach them how not to be on the other side of that? And they all do it. They're all on both sides, right? They're, they're getting hurt and they're causing hurt, which is probably a whole other podcast. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we are never, as parents, no matter what generation, going to know exactly the social dynamics of what's going on in our kids' lives. And maybe when they're 30, there's some, what did my family do? Two truths and a lie. And I was like, oh, I don't belong in this conversation. It was making me crazy. And in fact, they said to me, we didn't invite you in the conversation. You walked over here and joined it. Like they knew I shouldn't be part of it. But the reality is that 
that's never going to happen where teenagers are hitting adolescence. They're trying to separate from their families and they say, mom and dad, I want to invite you into every moment of my social life. <laughs> Knowing that, I think what Devorah gives us is kind of a perspective on how to look at some of those things as really positive, even though we might viscerally think not so good. Anyway, I know we gave you a lot about what Devorah is going to say, but I'm going to tell you it's not, it's really only a fraction of the wisdom that she shares. And so we hope you'll stay with us for the rest of the conversation with Devorah Heitner. everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be, but we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education. That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself. Whether you're a new parent, or have been in the game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. Dr. Devora Heitner is the author of ScreenWise, helping kids thrive and survive in their digital world. Her mission is to cultivate a culture of empathy and social-emotional literacy. Dr. Heitner's work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and CNN Opinion. Oh, and by the way, lots of times in your teen media. She has a PhD in media technology and society from Northwestern University and has taught at DePaul and Northwestern. She is delighted to be raising her own team. One of the questions that we get asked every time we talk about phones and and basically screens in general, after talking and talking and talking about how much this is about talking to our kids, inevitably the last question is, how do you feel about monitoring? So I'm going to start with the question that we often get at the very end and tell us, how do you feel about monitoring? Well, I think it really depends what parents mean and also, you know, where their kids are at in their development and in their experience with using these technical platforms. But monitoring may have a role in mentoring, but I'm always going to say that mentoring is more important than monitoring because ultimately we want to teach our young adults and teens 
how to be successful in using social platforms and games and, and other things on their own. And that's mentoring. So monitoring might have a role in that. Like maybe you get your kid a first phone and you might say, hey, I'm going to look at your text messages with you, you know, once a week. But ideally, it's a collaborative process, not something that you're doing covertly. Because if you're covertly, say, monitoring your kids' texts or reading their posts and they don't know you're there, first of all, what's your end game? You know, what's your plan for if you see something that concerns you? How are you going to bring that up with them? They didn't know you were there. And it really doesn't put you in a great position to act on it. Whereas if you're looking at it together, you can say, oh, like what happened in that group text? It looked like things got difficult. And then ideally you're moving to a place of your child is largely piloting their own ship in these spaces, but you are maybe doing more to make sure they get some sleep, you know, maybe taking their phone at night, et cetera. And they're coming to you if something comes up. So it's not that you're looking together at their device or their texts or posts, but they're coming to you if someone's posting something that's concerning, if they're in a conflict, they don't know how to handle. And the more they can, you can trust that they'll come to you if there are difficult situations, you know, whether it's a gross DM direct message from a stranger or a conflict with peers, the more you don't need to kind of proactively monitor. And I guarantee you that if you think you're monitoring everything your kid is doing digitally and they've been out there for a while, there's probably some stuff you're not seeing. And the more kids feel kind of over-tracked and over-surveilled, the more likely it is that they're going to hide and create an account that you can't see or do something else to get away from you. I feel like we should stop now. <laughs> like That is really an unbelievable piece of advice for all of us. Like The end game is that they feel safe coming to you, and that's not done by covert... <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. Go yeah, figure. Thanks for joining right. us, Devora. Thanks. <laughs> Talk another time. <laughs> that was awesome. Are there exceptions to your general rule, which would be like maybe a kid needs time limits, which you can restrict through certain settings, or maybe even what they can download? I think it's important to look at your kid. If your kid just came home from an inpatient stay for an eating disorder or a substance issue, for example, like an addiction or recovery or depression or something like that, a mental health stay, those would all be specific situations where you might want to really support them on avoiding certain kinds of content that could be problematic, maybe spend less time with social media. I wouldn't want to completely cut off a kid who wants to re-enter the social world because that's important, but I wouldn't want them spending a lot of time on spaces that could have harmful information for them or share video, you know, seeing videos and posts that could be really triggering. So I just think that those are kids who are especially vulnerable and might need a little bit more active monitoring. But I think for a typical kid in a typical situation, which would be like, you know, kid in middle school or high school who's learning the ropes, who's going to sometimes run into some conflict with peers or sometimes feel left out. But in general, social media is more of a source of fun or a way to get away from boredom and not necessarily, you know, a source of a lot of pain. Then I would be talking with them more about how to balance it with other activities in their lives, making sure it doesn't take over. Many kids get on social media just for the messaging. They're not even really there to post and kind of show off about their lives or kind of build a reputation or any of that. A lot of kids are using social media, you know, more to connect and communicate than to post from what I'm seeing and and from the kids I'm talking to. So in that case, it's just about helping them navigate conflict, making sure they know not to post things that are harmful or hurtful, not to circulate rumors, share news that's not their own, right? Those are just some important boundaries. 
And I would expect some things to go wrong. At some point, someone is going to post something they don't like, or they're going to post something that offends someone or annoys someone. And so that's a learning process. And there's very little you as a parent can do to completely prevent that from happening. I would just say being in open conversations with them, modeling good use of social yourself, including maybe sharing with them some things you don't like when people do certain, you know, like if people, if you don't like when people post in a braggy way or, you know, post things that are overly personal, you know, talk about that with your kids and talk about why you might've unfollowed certain people. And that that's a good way to mentor kids so that they can make thoughtful decisions about their own sharing. So how about our teens that are going off to college? Is there, you know, we see lots of posts from parents about, you know, kids getting in here, there, where they're going, appropriate, not appropriate. Tell, tell us more your thoughts on that. It's very important to get permission from kids before we post anything about their journey. And especially at that stage of their lives where they really are launching into adulthood and, and being more independent, going off to school or doing whatever comes after high school. So it's really important to respect their wishes. And we have to recognize too, that when we, especially when we post before they've even chosen a school, we may be opening them up to a lot of pressure that's really unnecessary. I mean, I was just at a dinner where, you know, an 18 year old was choosing between four really interesting options and they were getting a little pressure from people at the table. And I said to the senior, Hey, would you like us to stop talking about this? This isn't really like our decision. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, thanks. So I just think it's really important to recognize that if we're putting out there sort of at that stage, that's a lot. Once your child has accepted and committed They may be okay with you posting because sometimes kids feel more comfortable with their parents putting that out there and they don't want to brag or they don't want to put it out there. So just like we might post for a spouse, like my spouse just won a big award and, you know, I shared because he wants people to know, but maybe it's a little weird to post yourself, but I would never do it if your kid is saying no. And I would just remember to do it in a respectful way because there's so many kids right now, especially with the pandemic who may be in credit recovery, may not be going to college next year, may be in a different situation than your family. So it's just important to remember that. And if if that's you and it's kind of hurting you seeing all these posts, it's a good time to take a break from social media or you can kind of hide certain people or do whatever you need to do and encourage your kid to do the same, to not spend a lot of time kind of noticing other people's choices. Because the fact is we have no idea where today's 18-year-old with the cool acceptance letter is going to be in five years or 10 years, nor do we know where, you know, your kid who's taking a gap year and going to work and save money is going to be in five or 10 years. And so the fact is we want to focus on supporting our kids wherever they are in their journey and being happy for them and not getting so caught up in others. And social media, of course, is all about getting caught up in other people's lives. So (laughs) anything we can do to kind of resist that is good. That is really helpful to hear. And if you're in that space right now, man, you should share it with all your friends because it's such good advice. We're only touching on a few things because we wanted to cover a broader swath than to go take a deep dive. Gaming is such a big one. And there's so much we want to know about this as parents. But one of the things that really creates so much tension in families is getting kids to stop. So it's like dinner's in an hour and you give the warning and you give the second warning and then you say, okay, dinner. And they're like, I'm sorry, I'm almost done with this game. I can't come. What's the way? How do we, how do we not make this a point of conflict over and over and over again and still get what we think is important, which is a family supper? I think it's really important to recognize that it is very hard to walk away from the games and that they're designed that way. And the more we can get teens to kind of lock into that teen skepticism, 
of, wow, this, this is designed to keep me there. And it's designed with the same design principles and brain research that are used to keep people at the casinos, right? Like literally, you know, not having an end point, the near miss phenomenon where you almost think you're going to win the next time, the next time, the next time, all of that. And the social component to certain games where you're maybe playing with friends. So I think if it's a rule that you need to be unplugged by a certain time before dinner, and hopefully your kids have some chores around dinner, like maybe setting the table or doing something else, that they just need to do it. And I'm not into, you know, having a ton of, constantly consequencing teenagers. I think, I think we need to be all living together and be responsible, responsible. But if you're, if your kid can't show up to dinner, you know, on, on the weekdays, maybe they don't get to game during the week. I mean, it just feels like they need to show up and be part of the family. And hopefully your teen again is like cooking dinner some of the time, or at least doing something to help get dinner on the table. And they should not be just like on their butt on games at all times. And you're doing everything, including like pulling them off the game. Because those are the kids who are going to struggle in college and beyond to, you know, remember to stop gaming and go to class. So I think it is also important to give kids some less structured time where we see what happens. Because you don't want your senior to have never had themselves pulled off the game. Like, see what happens on the weekend or at a time when there's low stakes, maybe in the summer. You know, one of those sort of in-between times. Because it'd be interesting to see when does your kid actually just get up and walk away on their own? Like, will they even get themselves some food to eat? Like, what is the end time in their mind? Because that is interesting to see, right? If you walk away from your kid and you come back in 12 hours, are they in the same position? (laughs) What if they are? That's not such such a great test. I think it would be better to know that before you drop them off on a campus, though, and not after. Just like there are kids who won't shower or brush teeth without being reminded as much as you might not want to live with a kid who hasn't showered, it'd be good to know that before you drop them at school. So I do think actually there is some point before your kid is out in the world where you want to do some of these tests and see like, okay, what if I don't remind them to shower? Like, what will it be that, you know, maybe it's their boyfriend or girlfriend that says, hey, bud, like you smell, or maybe it's their best friend, you know, or, or maybe they just don't, but it would be good to kind of do some of these tests, but this is not what I would do in fifth grade, right? I wouldn't leave your fifth grader, you know, with a Nintendo switch and like go away for 12 hours and come back. But at some point it's good to start working on the self-regulation because then you can talk to them about your concerns, but also letting them experience some of the natural consequences of what did they miss, right? What, what's important to them, most kids, I'm really reluctant to use the term addiction with gaming, but there is technically, you know, in the DSM, a gaming addiction. Most parents who say their kid is addicted have a kid with a strong preference. They love to game. They would rather game than take out the trash or do homework. But when Go push figure. comes to shove, they are eating and showering. They're not addicted. Um, and again, I'm not a psychologist. So I can't clinically diagnose your kid or anyone, you know, with addiction. But if you're worried, if gaming is interfering with family life, if you're having a ton of conflict, not just a little conflict, but like a lot of conflict and interfering, then I would get some help because there may be some some cognitive techniques that your child needs. It may be that they do need to only play at certain times. They may They may need to do more intentionally to help themselves, right? And again, to self-regulate, just like some people have an easier time self-regulating around other things. Let's go a little bit deeper into gaming in terms of what games are appropriate. So a first-person shooter game, is that a problem? I wouldn't so much be concerned about the content of games, especially with older teens, as much as I'm concerned about their behavior when they're playing and when they're off the game. So if they can't transition away, if they're if you think they're going to throw a controller or slug somebody, if they're hurting their friendships by being really aggressive in the game, 
if they're meeting people in the gaming community that seem to be bringing out the worst in them, like those would be more concerning than like the specific games. I mean, you and your own family have to look at your values. The research on shooter games is that it won't make your kids violent. And if they, if it did, we'd all be dead because we've all walked by people in the last week that play these games. Some people even think that it's an outlet for violence that's in many of us that's like more acceptable and has more acceptable consequences than kids drag racing or or slugging each other, which at least for boys used to be considered somewhat within the pale and for high school behavior, but is now considered totally not okay. Right. I mean, I, I can't imagine this, but, you know, I hear that in previous decades, like there was a certain kind of tolerance for, I guess, especially boys to be somewhat physically violent. Now there's the zero tolerance on that. And video games are, you know, this outlet. I wouldn't worry about the specific game content as much as how you're, you know, your kid can have a relationship with Minecraft or Tetris. That could be a problem for your family, or they could be playing a shooter game, but be able to get off of it and transition well to dinner. And I would be more worried about the kid who can't get off Minecraft and isn't sleeping. It's a little bit like social media, like watch how they're reacting. If they're, if it's just pleasure, then there's no harm. Or if it's predominantly pleasure. I mean, I think none of us get to swim in the deep end without any pain, I can't think of anyone who uses social media who's like never had a bad experience. But I think, you know, if the good experiences far outweigh the bad most of the time, then it's probably worth doing. But I've met a lot of kids who are getting off social. Again, I know that there are many kids who spend a lot of time on Instagram and Snapchat, but I've met kids who are, you know, also kind of like, I'm done or I'm taking a break from TikTok or whatever. I hear from a lot of adults too. It's really interesting that the pendulum swinging back, swinging back. Okay, so our next topic is going to be social media, but before we go there, we're going to just do a quick lightning round. So that means give us a yes, no, or maybe. We've got a fictional character who's 12 years old and they're named Pat. So do you read their texts? First of all, is Pat new to texting? How's Pat doing with their social circle? Are you disclosing to Pat that you're reading their text? Okay, you're breaking the rules, Devora. <laughs> the rules are yes, no, or maybe. <laughs> I think the rule is maybe and definitely only, you know, with some kind of plan. Not just like, I'm curious about Pat, so I'm going to read their text. Okay. Do you install monitoring software? Probably not. Do you set time limits for usage? Likely, yes. Do you have GPS tracking on their phone? No. Do you allow phones in their bedroom at night? No. Do you follow your kids on social media? Well, they're 12, so theoretically they're not on social yet. (laughs) And is that true in your house? My kid is not yet on social, and he's actually 13. He's just not interested, but he does use Discord and a lot of other tech things, so it's not like he's offline. He's just not using Instagram, Snapchat, or Twitter, nor are any of his friends. Like There are a lot of 13-year-olds out there who are on Discord and games who are not on any of those social apps. What about just connecting socially? So will my kid be left out if if they don't have Instagram, TikTok, et cetera? Does that have social implications? Yes, it can. I think a kid who is less up on the sort of pop culture stuff and memes and other things, YouTube, TikTok, can feel like the conversation is happening without them. Does that mean you're doing your kid great social harm if they don't have those things? Can they survive? I think, yes, they can survive. 
I think a kid who goes to high school or even eighth grade without having a way to text friends is in a very precarious situation socially because that's the way kids make plans. And there's just no point, probably even before eighth grade, but certainly by eighth grade and high school where parents are making the social plans for kids, right? So your 10th grader is not going to like have you write to somebody else's mom and be like, can Brad come over? And so if your kid doesn't have a way to do that, they have an issue, I would say. But anything else is kind of optional and extra. I feel like you said something that was profound on our last panel about texting. Do you have any memory of what you said? Texting is a really crucial skill, and we do too little to help kids learn about it. And it is, of all of these things, the thing that's probably most likely to still be with us is something they're going to need to really get and learn how to do. I think we, we spend so much time worrying about what will they post on Instagram and we don't teach them enough about texting. Why is that the most important thing? Well, it, it is how you're going to make plans. You're going to text across different communities. I mean, you're going to text people you know well, people you don't well. It's just really important that kids learn to text, that they know how, when to get off of a text in the sense of if there's a conflict, maybe they need to talk in person or on the phone all of and they need to navigate group text which is often the first things kids are often group texting starting in 5th grade or even sometimes younger and so often parents are like oh i don't have to have the social media talk with my kid until middle school and meanwhile they're already on a group text with the whole grade having all kinds of you know interactions so i think it's texting is really important i would say kids need to know how to text your kid can totally opt out of social media as mine and again many other kids have said i'm not that interested but I don't feel like texting is optional. Like for my own kid, I've pushed him to learn to text. Like he's not even that interested in texting. I'm like, you have to text your friends if you want to make plans. I'm not going to do this for you. Like it's it's something I would push kids to learn how to do. Again, I wouldn't like make your kid go text random kids that they don't want to talk to. But if they want to make plans and they're nervous to text, I would kind of gently nudge them into that. And I also think kids need to know how to use the phone to call and answer phone calls because they will have to do that sometimes. And you don't want the first call your kid ever gets to be offering them a job or a scholarship. And they're like, my phone is vibrating. What do I do? <laughs> it's so funny because I was thinking how, as you were saying the uh, this idea of teaching them to text, I thought, oh, it's just like how we teach them phone calls. So you read my mind because it is, and we talk about that all the time, the teaching them the etiquette, right? What that looks like. So um, I love that answer. How about as far as like just getting them started? Are there good starter social media apps or places where you feel like, kind of like how you use the texting conversation, are there any any apps that you think, yeah, that's a good place to tell our parents to start with their kids? Any app can be good or bad or can be used in thoughtful or ways that are not great. So I, I, I don't think there's kind of baby apps or kids. I mean, you could say like Facebook Messenger for kids or something, but in reality, most kids are bypassing that step and going right to... So I would say texting is the introduction for most kids. And then they're either going to go maybe in a Discord gaming direction, or they're going to go more toward like TikTok and YouTube, or they're going to maybe go toward social media. There might be kids who are going to do all of those things. I mean, you've got some kids who are very into, you know, all of those spaces and kids who will really gravitate toward maybe one or two of them. And I would ideally say one at a time. So if your kid really wants TikTok, maybe then you hold off on Instagram, right? Like, in other words, let them learn to swim, you know, in one kind of water before they're doing all five, if possible. That ship may have already sailed for a lot of you. And so that's fine. But 
if you're in that position of getting kids a first device and they're going to be out there in the world, I would focus on their texting skills initially and then let them add one app at a time. And even consider if if they're wanting to add another app, how much value are you getting from the last one? Maybe you want to get rid of it. Most kids will not subtract, but it's something to think about because you maybe don't want 10 apps that are calling you at all times. And how about in terms of like where we should be holding off or thinking you know what, the, the longer the, the longer I delay, the better. I think we want to delay our kids' introduction to pornography as long as we can, but there's porn in any of these apps. So certainly on YouTube, TikTok. So I would say, you know, having an early conversation about pornography and why we don't want kids to, to consume it and then return to that over time as they might grow more interested in it as they mature. And really talking to them, not just like a moral question, but really like some ethical questions about the industry, why it might lead to confusing information about relationships and sex and consent, certainly. But, you know, you can find porn on Pinterest. So I think a lot of people would like to think like these are the good apps and the bad apps, but there's content that we don't want kids to see in any app. Devara, you brought this up several times, Discord, and I know kids use it for school, But how else is it being used? And is there anything about Discord that I should know as a parent to to keep like my antenna up? Yeah, I don't know kids actually using it for school, but there there could be. I mean, it's a place where you can do kind of like the old school bulletin boards and chats, but it was organized by gamers and a lot of people use it as a voice channel for gaming and also a place to discuss special interests. So there's Discords about anime, there's Discords about LGBTQIA identity, there's Discords about neurodiversity and there, you know, so it might be like, welcome to our neurodiverse chat. Do you identify as having, you know, ADHD or autism? Like join our chat and get support. It could be like, do you watch this specific show? Um, here's our Shit's Creek app, you know, uh, Discord. So there, there's a huge range of what young people and older people are doing on Discord. I think one of, one of the many things to think about, and this is true for any internet platform, but I think this is especially true on Discord is it is a multi-generational space. So your kid might be in an anime platform and you have to think about like, am I comfortable with my 14 year old being in a platform that also has, or in a chat, you know, where there might be people in their twenties that might be okay if they're just talking about anime, but what if it moves into the social realm? What if it moves into the romantic realm? Like how comfortable am I with my kids in a mixed age situation like that? For example, I know kids who also play on moderated discords where maybe they're doing a role-playing game like Dungeons and Dragons and it's through a local library and you have to show a library card and show that you're a student in a local school. Obviously, that's a very different situation than just like, you know, kind of a random anime discord, again, to use that example, where it's multi-generational. Now, it could be fine. Your kid could be totally fine in that anime discord. If you have, you know, a 17-year-old with good judgment, you know, maybe you're less concerned about them than an 11-year-old. So I think it's also important to look at how mature is your kid, how old are they, what is the age range of the people in the Discord, if that's even a knowable thing? Sometimes that's a set group. How confident do you feel about your kids' boundaries and their ability to not to over-disclose to strangers? Discord is an incredibly cool place, but there, you know, it really depends kind of, again, just like, it's like saying, how do you feel about New York City? It's like, well, where are you going in New York City? What's your plan? You know, like, there's a lot to do there. And Discord is a big place with a lot of different places. You know, do you want your kid in a mental health Discord where people are are talking about recent suicide attempts and recovery? How would you even know where they are? Well, I would be talking to them about Discord and I might not 
be so happy to greenlight, you know, just regular Discord. My own 13-year-old is in a couple of Discords, but they're all moderated Discords related to activities he's in as opposed to just like the big world of Discord. You know, like, like again, these are through, you know, the public library or other things. So that's a very different, it's a bit more But does moderate. that mean I, as a parent, I should really understand what Discord is? Yeah, if your kid's spending a lot of time on Discord, I would try to understand what it is. And again, if you remember chat rooms and bulletin boards from the old days of the internet, it's kind of like that. So Devorah, I guess there's so much information here and there is, we could talk about this for hours, but I'm wondering if as a parent, do I need to hit the panic button or is there actually just some good here that we could focus on? Well, I think kids are making tremendously positive use of digital spaces. They're supporting one another, whether it's through a supportive, you know, LGBTQIA Discord space, whether it's, you know, supporting one another on Instagram, whether it's, you know, organizing and doing activism and using some of these platforms to get out the vote or to let students and other people know about an important issue. So I think there's a lot that that young people are doing well. And I also think there's a lot that's innocuous. There might be a lot of, you know, funny memes on TikTok and YouTube that you know, may not be like the highest and best use of your time, but are also like fine and won't hurt you and might be, you know, bring a smile to your face during a difficult time, which I would say the last two years have been. So I think it's really important to not panic about our kids tech savvy and and to recognize that some of that might even be something that they can use to build a career. At the same time, I think it's really important that we help our kids, you know, not just go down these rabbit holes of time and some of that, I think they have to experience for themselves. Some, some, some of the learning about how to regulate their experience or how to navigate conflicts that they run into online are things that they're just going to have to kind of like have those experiences and be like, okay, next time I'm going to walk away. Next time I'm going to do it differently. So I think we can't prevent everything. And we also can learn from our kids. We can literally get advice on social media from our kids, whether it's like they're looking at two possible LinkedIn pictures for us and they're going to tell us which is the less bad one, whether it's, you know, I'm about to send this email out to the whole family. Can you read it first? And they're like, actually, let me help you fix the tone. There's a lot that our kids can do to help us. And I think that's a really great opportunity to have those good intergenerational conversations. Dr. Tavar Heitner, we love having you in our Your Teen family. And every time we hear from you, it's like you just tell us something new and something calming. And for that, we are tremendously grateful We understand there's some projects on the horizon for you, and we can't wait to have you back on your team with Sue and Steph. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to chat with both of you. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about your team with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.
I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.